Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Today's podcast guest is sound engineer and record producer Mike Pelliconi, better known under his record name Prince Fatty. So as a producer, he has worked with a diverse repertoire of artists and labels from the acid jazz of the 1990s to rock musicians like Graham Coxon of Blur, reggae legends like Gregory Isaacs and Dub Syndicate and pop singers such as Lily Allen. So we're thrilled to welcome him on today to talk about his career and his involvement with a brand new studio in Brighton called Seaside Studios. Um, So welcome along, Mike. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Very well. Thank you, Alice. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you were just saying off air, you've been so busy at the moment, haven't you? You just got a day off today, so we're fitting you in. We're very grateful for that. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, actually, it's been, I've had a very cool session, been working with uh, musicians that used to play with Fela Kuti, the, the Afrobeat superstar from the 70s. So I've had his bass player and guitarist and a few of the guys in, in actually my new studio, so... Uh, yeah, and it's only been up and running the last two or three weeks. So it's all got wired up at the last minute and we hit go and that was the first session. So it's been good fun. Okay, I'm glad very, it's been going well yeah, yeah, so very, far. Very where's, your, um, where's your studio then? Because you're from Brighton, aren't you? But you're not there now. Yeah, so I've made a, actually I've made a new a new place, a new mixing and mastering room above a venue called the Fox and Firkin in Lewisham in South East London. That's one of the sort of coolest, hippest live music venues. Nice. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, a lot of cool bands come and play here. Uh, reggae legends like Horace Andy and Big Youth, um, the Orb are coming here and, uh, for the Orb fans that's coming up soon. And then, uh, many sound systems as well. And yeah, it's very cool. So it's nice to have a, basically the place is buzzing and um, it's nice to have the studio above that. So it's a real great music energy Yeah, and also... If I need to borrow a mic stand, I can just go downstairs and grab one. It's pretty handy. <laughs> it's handy. <laughs> <laughs> so um, take it back to what well, you did start out in the studio in Brighton, didn't you? So what, what was yeah. your start? That you, were, um, you did work experience, I think, didn't you? A radio station, is that right? Yep. Yeah, I mean, basically, I, I, leaving school, I did six months at A-levels and then dropped out because I knew it really I wanted to be in the studios. So I'd started working in little demo studios. There was one in Brighton at the time. And they used to do lots of jingles for all the radio stations. And I basically got the job doing the, the little edits for all the, the, the little radio adverts that they used to do. And that's how I learned how to edit quarter-inch tape. I did that for a, for a little while. And then um, I just basically moved up to London and just started harassing people, uh, writing letters. And, and actually, what gave me my break is going. I went into Denmark Street and I saw this sign on the door that said Noisegate. And I just... I knew already that that was uh, an audio term for, you know, for a tool or whatever. So I just pressed it and asked if it was a recording studio. And they said, yes. And I said, hey, I'm looking for a job. Do you need an assistant? And they said, come come inside. And I was very lucky that someone a few days previous had left and they really needed someone. So then, um, and that was actually Rebel MC Studio. And nice. uh, he was at the time having like quite a few hits. So it was quite fun. And uh, and then, yeah, that was it. So, and that was basically in that studio, give or take. I mean, that was kind of where like jungle was invented. So the, the DJs and all the all the producers that were were kind of in and around there were were the first were I to me. Yeah, were, were one of the first people to start speeding up all the drums and stuff. Mm. I actually thought they were crazy, you know, but <laughs> that's, that was the beginning of that whole movement. 
And now actually Rebel MC is called Congo Nati and he's one of the big jungle superstars. But <clears throat> in the basement of his studio was the demo studio where I was working out of at first. That's where all of that kind of thing happened with the early UK hip hop and things like that. So it was, and yeah, that was my entrance into, into London and, and recording and stuff like that. Oh um, basically, I was the only one that was prepared to also work at the weekends because I didn't have any friends. <laughs> I just moved to London. So when, whenever towards the end of the week, they said, hey, what are you doing at the weekend? And I'd be like, nothing. And they were like, you want to work? And I was like, yeah, sure. You've got nothing else to do. So it was kind of like, in the end, that's what, it just went on like that. Um, across the street, there was a record label called Acid Jazz where Jamiroquai and Brand New Heavies and all that, those guys were signed signed to. Um, that was number 22, Denmark Street. So then I started doing sessions out of there and eventually kind of, uh, yeah. Um, I was also doing sessions in many other studios as well, but kind of predominantly working out of those two places. And then um, because of the singer from the Brand New Heavies and Dear Davenport, she had a solo album deal with a with a company in America called Delicious Vinyl. Mm -hmm. And um, they were, at the time, they were like one of the big hip-hop labels. And they had big hits with Tone Loke and Young MC, uh, The Far Side and people like that. And, uh, and they had said to me, hey, I, I'd like you to come to America and, and, and work with me. And I actually, at the time, thought it was just like talk, but... Wow, sure enough, a few weeks later, I had a work permit and off I went to LA. And I, I was like in my sort of early 20s mm. and then just stayed out there for three or four years, basically until Delicious Vinyl got dropped from Capital Records and the money ran out. So then, and after that, to be honest, you, after three, four years, I was ready to come back to England. You know? Yeah, I can so, imagine um, after that. Where were you in um, America for four years? Where so that was, that was in Los Angeles in, in Hollywood. Yeah. So it was fun because the the late nineties in Hollywood, you still had <clears throat> you still you still had all the old big seventies studios there. So yeah, Sunset Sound, Hollywood Sound Recorders, got to do sessions at Capitol Studios, which was pretty special. Um, there was an incredible studio called Sound Castle. That was a new studio, but the guy that built that was was uh, an insane, like insanely good acoustician. So everybody would be going down there to to mix. You know, I'd be mixing things that that several studios in the complex, and I'd be I was mixing in one room, and then Snoop Dogg would be in the other room, and it was quite amazing for me to come to England and suddenly I'm in a studio and like Snoop Dogg is in the room next door. A Hollywood sound recorders, Rick Rubin was often a lot in there as well. So then I got to you know obviously meet and see how they worked and hang out and become friends with those guys. So. It was pretty, it was, yeah, it was a good time. And what did you learn from working with, you know, artists working at that level at the time? Um, well, to be patient with timekeeping, especially with the rappers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard. <laughs> um, and also that's, <laughs> it's funny because actually that's when I left, my boss was sad and I said to him, come on, man, there's loads of great engineers in, um, in Los Angeles. You'll be okay, man. You'll find someone to work with. And he said, yeah, but, you know, Mike, you never complain about anything, you know? And that was sometimes, you know, I, I never complained if people were late or if, if the session overran a couple of hours. I didn't complain. You see what I mean? Mm. Just happy to be working. It's an amazing thing, you know? 
Yeah, I so think that's the key I, part I was, of it, though. You've got to love what you do and adapt to things, haven't you? You've right. clearly hustled to get right. where you've got to. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you have to complain about serious stuff, but I don't know why you'd complain about a rapper being late. That's kind of stupid, in my opinion. Yeah. So if you know you're working with rappers, don't show up at the studio till two in the afternoon because they're not going to show up till three or four, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I wasn't going to get to the studio at 10 o'clock in the morning for the far side. No way. So I'd have a nice line, then I'd go looking for records, then I'd take a late branch, and then I would go to the studio. And then I would still have to wait an hour or two for them. No problem, you know? Mm. It's one but of those things, isn't it? I don't know. Like, I think if you went to the studio at 10 o'clock in the morning and then waited for them all day and then were grumpy because they were late, I think that's your fault. You need to read the the, the movement a bit better. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So, that's, that was kind of... But anyway, it was amazing. Got to work on loads of really cool cool equipment, like loads of old API consoles, Neve consoles. Like I said, the experiences at Capital were amazing. Studio B at Capital was insane. I actually copied... This, I actually built a studio after that, and I tried to copy the the, the mixed dimensions of Capital B. Uh, the, the Sorry, of the room at Studio B in Capital. All and right, how did that it, go? I got it really close. Close, yeah, that yeah. was in Brighton. That was in Brighton at the time. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, and I, I made a really nice studio in Brighton. And then uh, eventually, you know, the, the the it got too posh. Bright the centre of Brighton got too posh, and the landlord got annoyed with us and tripled the rent. Mm, classic. So that was that was yeah that was Brighton out of the game. But okay. to be honest, with you, I was bored by then anyway. Yeah, I think studios are only really good fun for me personally for a set amount of time. Eventually, you kind of wear them out. Okay. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. know. Once you've recorded in every crook and cranny of the place and you've done a lot, then it's often time to time to try something new, really. Mm. So how long have so, you been where you are now, then? All right. So what happened in the... I've actually got a mixed studio in Thailand with a friend, and I got caught out there in the pandemic, came back a year into the pandemic, and then basically sat around doing nothing for a year and got really bored. And the owner of the Fox and Firkin, who I've worked with on and off for many years, started to redevelop the venue. And he said to me, look, take the top floor. Um, I want to wire up the studio. I want to wire up the entire building so we can do live concerts here, which really appealed to me. I really love live albums. Um, and to be able to get involved with uh, the stage and basically the, the stage is acoustically designed like a recording studio. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's basically like a studio that's got a pub and an audience, a potential of 600 capacity audience in, in front of the stage, you know? So it's really cool. So it sounds really good on stage. All the test recordings that I've been doing over the last couple of months are, are, are beautiful. And we're just starting to develop the the, the reputation as somewhere to come to to record your you know your live performances mm-hmm. but at studio quality which is fun and, yeah. um because it's you know like studios are cool but <clears throat> the, there's a certain energy that sometimes is not easy to recreate in a in a sort of week you know daytime regular 10 to 6 vibe you know mm-hmm. whereas in the evening with the lights on with the crowd there and the, the musicians start to to pop a bit better with the with energy and it's nice so it's actually good to uh, i really enjoy it it's, it's good and the danger of it all possibly going wrong 
as uh, well. Yeah, I was going to ask. There must be that element to it, surely. <clears throat> Not from my end. No, we're we're reliable. Everything's tight, but. You know, the you know, at the end, you know, some of the guys that I've been working with I said, Hey, if you're not happy with the performance, just do it again. No one minds. You just tell the crowd crowd that, hey, you're recording. Do you mind if we do it again? And they'll they'll scream, yeah, anyway. They love it. You know? So it's fine. But it's nice to see the some of the younger bands that perhaps I think weren't expecting it or inexperienced bands that, you know, basically the midweek bands that come into play. I've been giving them their, their recordings and wow, they've been very surprised by the quality and it's nice. Mm. It's good fun. And what about... So I, I like um, that energy. Also, I love it. Being above a buzzing venue is cool. Um, and there's there's many super talented people coming in and out of the place all the time. So it's, I didn't really... Before I've made studios before and they'd end up being in little units or in hidden little secret back streets that nobody knew about or whatever. Whereas this is the opposite. I'm above a venue and everybody wants to come up and see the place and get involved. And so it's a nice way of promoting the the, the, the studio as well. Yeah, of course. And especially you know, after what's happened, um, like you said, uh, the lockdown and everything. Do you think um, it's busier now because people are just appreciating being able to go out and do live music again and record in actual studios again? Yeah, I think it's coming. You know, obviously for... In the past, uh, the, the cycle of having to, to you know, obviously in the past you needed a, an album to tour, so everyone had this cycle of, you know, touring an album over the summer and then chilling out a bit, then making a record and then touring that again the following summer. That whole cycle got broken by COVID, so I think it's going to take a minute for people to sort of get back on it. But I've seen, look, I saw two reactions during COVID. I saw some people be very lazy and just relax. And then I saw other people sort of keep at it and work harder even just to, so I think it's just down to how much you were, you kind of did. Um, so yeah, some of the people I know, wow, they got, they've got so many recordings to, to go. They just didn't want to release them because they weren't allowed. They weren't, uh, they didn't have the opportunity to go out live. Mm -hmm. So now that they can go out live again, I think you're going to hear a lot more music coming out. So once that backlog's got, got been got rid of, so to speak, I think all the studios will be even more busy again. Yeah, I think you're right. And um, I think we need to talk about, obviously, the influence of reggae music on you and your career. Is this music that you loved as a kid? Have you been brought up on it? How was it that you ended up doing so much in this genre? <laughs> Basically, because I, I love bass. So I play, I, I, you know, uh, I started playing bass, but I got, I'm one of those, basically, I was, in the in the late mid eighties, late late eighties, growing up, all the people that had vinyls suddenly had CDs, and they weren't they didn't really care about their vinyls so much. Mm. So everywhere I went, because I expressed an interest in the vinyl, whether it was family or friends or whatever, I'd be like, oh, I'd start flicking through the records, and then they'd be like, oh, you know, we got a CD now, and uh, if you want those vinyls, take them. So I had this crazy, crazy, by the time I was 13, 14, I had a sort of really bizarre record collection from all the hand-me-downs from relatives and, and friends right. and so on, you know, or friends, family and parents. And that varied from, yeah, all the classic like Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin to some crazy jazz music and really weird stuff to, to yeah, like obviously Bob Marley, Bernie, I got lucky Basically, one of my friend's mums had been to art college 
and in London, and I think she'd had, yeah, basically like a Rasta boyfriend or something, and he'd taken her to the record shop and essentially bought her the best. I mean, even now, there's still like the 10 best reggae albums, if you like. And fast forward X amount of years later, I'm in her living room and she's like, oh, you can have my records. And so I I actually got these 10 albums and they're, you know, they're, it, it was like Israel Vibration, Burning Spear and things like that. Really serious reggae music. And, and I got that at like 13, 14 and I was trying to copy and learn the bass lines. So that's kind of what got, got me into it too. Because um, what fascinated me was the fact that it was the first time I'd heard records with no singing on, like just drums and bass and atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So the, the the dub really appealed to me. Um, it did drive my, I mean, you know, it drove everyone crazy around me, basically. But um, I loved it. So <laughs> that was kind of, and that's, and when I moved to London, like I said, I started in working with Rebel MC and the guys in there were, there was they're already sampling Burning Spear and all that stuff. So I knew the records they were sampling. Uh, people like the Ragga Twins and stuff were coming in. Then I started working in Brixton. There was a studio called Lion Music and all the local reggae artists used to work out of there. Um, and some of the, 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 I mean, really special, special guys from the 1960s were just the local, I mean, I, I regret it now because, for example, Roy Shirley. Roy Shirley is one of the most special reggae singer-songwriters from the 60s, right? Roy Shirley's, anybody that knows reggae music knows the importance of Roy Shirley. And I had no idea as a 17, 18-year-old that this old, lovely, super talented black gentleman was of who he was. He used to just come in and book little sessions here and there, and and I used to work with him, and I, I always loved it. But I just had no idea of his history. No one ever told me, hey, that's the great Roy Shirley who, mm. you know, was one of the co-founders of Rocksteady with Alton Ellis and all these great things. And so I was, I was very lucky getting to, to to just, in a very natural, organic way, getting to work with all those guys. So I, I kind of, I was comfortable working with Jamaican artists as well. So I didn't have a problem understanding them or their vibes or whatever. So it was cool. And yeah, easy. So yeah, from course. there, like, yeah, all the guys, uh, Junior Delgado, um, Dub Judah, Twinkle Brothers, all the all the local sort of South London-based, yeah, reggae, reggae artists I got to, to meet. So later, when I started doing my thing as Prince Fatty, it was natural for me. I just called my old friends to, to make music. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that, that came about because of Stussy, the, the, the clothes label. They yeah. called me up to make a one-off record for them, which I did. Then everybody liked it. Then they started to book me. They wanted me to go and do shows for them. And then this this thing called Prince Fadi appeared, you know? I know, and the rest <laughs> is history. You're still doing um, that now, though, aren't you? Your late single, so it's... And I might, oh, yeah, am sure. I saying this wrong? Mella, Mella. <laughs> My uh, yeah, the Japanese. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do, do many things. Um, yeah, no, it's cool. I love it. It's like my hobby that turned... Turned into sort of um, sort of a almost a full time job if I wanted to be. Well, but no, that's great. And I, I like think it. reggae's just it seems like it never really I don't know goes out of popularity. It's just con- a constant. I, I think you just can't listen to reggae and be in a bad mood, can you? Yeah, I mean it's not, it's not for everybody. Um, but I mean I do I do 
a lot of other stuff as well. I mean, basically, the what is it's it's yeah, it's fun if if you like playing music loud, which is what I like doing. Ultimately, then it's, there's no more fun than playing music on a big, big reggae sound system that's just vibrating the hell out of the entire neighborhood. I mean, like when the guys come and play here, like the, the the windows in the chicken shop five doors down rattle. And, you know, we love it. It's just, it's, it's not for everybody, but if you love the deep, deep bass, then, then and I've always loved that. Any, any music, whatever music it is that I like, always has to have a good bass, whether it's jazz or rock or soul or, so, you know, if the bass is good, I'm in. Awesome. So. Do the uh, chicken chop guys love it too? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have any choice. I didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and we're lucky, you know, like uh, we're in Lewisham, so we can, it's okay. And naturally where the venue is, it gets away with it. So it's cool. Yeah, okay. That fits quite well we, then. Um, we, don't, we, we don't get too many complaints. But obviously if it was in a, in a, in Notting Hill, it wouldn't be possible. You know? No, maybe it wouldn't go down so well there. Gentrification and music don't go together, sadly. No, that's why you escaped Brighton, maybe as well. <laughs> yeah, that killed Brighton too. Exactly. Mm. I mean, but but Brighton. To be honest with you, I hate to put. I don't want to put Brighton down or anything, but Brighton's music reputation is really from meant like twenty, thirty years ago. You know, so I think from a live a live music capacity is starting to come back now. There's been there's been a definitely a conscious movement to have more venues. But for a minute, there wasn't actually many small venues where people could play, which was incredibly sad. Mm. But now, now it's coming back for sure, which is good. But I think, um, you know, music venues are important. Yeah. Yeah, and anything that encourages so, that. I don't understand. Like, if you buy a house near a music venue, you're crazy if you don't like music. So <laughs> don't buy a house near a music venue if you're noise sensitive. Yeah, because you you're I mean? going to hear it. Yeah, come on. It's like, I think it's actually kind of daft. It's not the venue's fault. A venue's been there for 50 years or whatever. And then a, you decide to move there close and then you complain. Well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I know what That's you mean. That's like, like moving next to a power station or moving next to the station or a train line and then riding to British Rail every day complaining about the noise. It's like, mate, you decided to live next to the bridge. So it's like if you live next, if you decide to move next to the Volks where they play in Brighton, where they play drum and bass till six in the morning every night and they have a license to do it, then it's your fault for moving too close to the venue, man. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? Well, I, I don't know. So, yeah. I think it's just kind of, you know, but the, this is what's good. I think about Russell. Russell's very brave and very, very amazing for making a big super studio in Brighton. Yeah, so this is uh, Seaside Studios, just for any listeners. This is a new yeah, studio, sure. isn't it? Um, and you have been involved there, haven't you? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I, I helped him install the desk when we brought it down, but the the building that he's, he's, um, that he's made is, is, is very, very special, and it's been redesigned from the, the ground up. Um, and uh, the acoustics are, are, are world-class. I mean, uh, it's, it's a multi-million pound facility, no doubt. Um, and I think it's very, very, very exciting that that Brighton actually has a um, a studio that that is worthy of attracting, you know, international and you know the the, the best work possible. Really, mm. um, it always lacked that. I made a, a, you know, that's why I had to build my own place in Brighton years ago 
um, because I felt frustrated. There weren't any any nice big live rooms to work out of, and you know, it was you know all the studios were like project posh, basically posh project studios. If yeah. you see what I mean, yeah, yeah. There wasn't anywhere really super, you know, for live recording like that at the time. And I think what Russell's done is very brave, and and yeah, uh, I love it. I think he's he's gonna make uh, some great music then. Like I said, going back to the 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 Neve eighty sixty eight, he's got he's got a very special one, um, and I think he's going to make great records down there for real. So I'm I'm very happy to be associated with it and to to get to book sessions and to go down there. You know, it's it's really a special place. Mm, and you love you were saying off air vintage analog equipment, and anyone that's read off a bit on your career can <laughs> see that's you know, been going back away. So um, what's your experience with the Neve 8068 disc? Had you used it before? Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the 8068 was basically, uh, how can I say, the 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 Ferrari or the Rolls-Royce of the, the Neve era of mixing consoles. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was made in 1976. So that was really like the sort of the peak of, Around you know the kind of mid seven mid seventies is the the peak of real analog audio equipment where they all went money no object to create and the the most fantastic equipment possible. Um, after that, things changed and you know, but uh, and this this was made you know it's it's a beautiful handmade mixing desk you know it's it's it's, it's uh, yeah it's unbelievably sounding. And, you know, there's a reason why uh, 50 years or whatever, almost 50 years after they made them, people, they're still the most, one of the most sought after mixing desks in the world. And, you know, all the big studios, uh, you know, if you like uh, in, in, in America, like, yeah, like a power station used to have one and places like that and uh, Capital, the, you know, many, many famous recordings, I don't know, from ACDC to all the sort of soul or, I don't know, everyone, when I was growing up as a sound engineer, everyone always referenced Steely Dan albums as being the sort of the sonic masterpieces of the late 70s, mm-hmm. if you like. And that they were all done on Neve 8068s as well. I see. Um, I've read as well, it's universally considered to be one of, if not the best, vintage Neve console for tracking and mixing. So have you found that to be the case um, in any of your work or just when you've had yeah, a chance sure. to get hands on it? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you know, basically it's, it's one of the best mixing desks and recording desks, period. I mean, really you have to record on it and mix on it to, to get the full effect on it, of it, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's really it's as a recording console where it comes through the best um, because the microphone amplifiers on it are very special. So the when you record on it and then and then mix down on it, it's it's beautiful. So to give you an idea, uh, many times we would record. I would record something on a eighty sixty eight console, and then for whatever reason, the record company would decide to then go and do the mix elsewhere. Uh, and we then spend most of our time we'd be trying to sort of what's the word catch our tails again, yeah. and we'd be constantly referencing the mix of the eighty sixty eight console to even come close to it, and it would you know it was a struggle, 
So it's <laughs> even though it was the same recorded source material, if mm -hmm. you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So they really do have a, a sonic quality to them. And um, uh, it's, it's yeah, like I said, uh, some people prefer the, the earlier designs that Neve uh, produced, but I disagree. I think they're inferior. So I think the literally the, 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 the 8068 era of Neve is, in my opinion, is the best yet, hands mm. down. What was it that made um, Russell opt for this particular desk then at Seaside Studios? Did he, did he sort of ask your um, opinion? Not sure, because he loves he loves ACDC back in black, and he <laughs> thinks it's one of the best sounding records ever made. And he was like, "Wow, what did that? You know, whatever that was recorded on, I want one of those too." And he managed to track one down. Nice. So, and actually, the the history of his one's quite fun too, because it come from Ibiza. You know, it's had a lot of funk made on it. You know, it's, you know, uh, whatever. You know, we've been told that Nile Rogers and people like George Clinton used it, Daft Punk used it. So. This sounds uh, like a serious you know. studio. I know this is no small investment for this desk alone, right? Yeah. I mean, like I said, he's nuts, that's, <laughs> which I, that's why I love him. I think he's a genius and very brave. But also at the same time, uh, fortune favors the brave, and to put um, to put a world class recording facility together right now, I think is 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 a really is a great achievement. Um, especially as he's been building it through the pandemic as well, so he's managed to do it, you know, with all the possible delays and and hassles mm -hmm. you can imagine. So, um, absolutely, not so everyone's doing yeah, that, other way, forward, are they? I look forward to very much, you know, in the. I'm not 100% sure when you'd have to check with Russell for the actual launch date of his main facility. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, it's, like I said, yeah, it's going to be very, very special. And um, acoustically, because look, the, the reality is, is you can have the best mixing console in the world, but if the acoustics and the environment aren't great, then you can only achieve so much. And he's gone to great lengths to to really produce uh, and, and design uh, a world-class mixing room with, with first-class acoustics and also a beautiful, very large live room that can accommodate, you know, the, the, a really big band with, without mm -hmm. any sort of cramping or acoustic defects. So you can really go there and make, make something special. Yeah, you're definitely right there. So anyone uh, listening, they can just Google Seaside Studios Brighton. It's got the whole equipment list there. You can see just how much has gone into this. And I know they've got, um, I just want to ask you about this as well. They've got um, not just the desk, they've got 12 AMS Neve 1081R mic preamps. So they've got the vintage, you know, Neve sound with the desk, missed with the versatil versatility, sorry, of the newer um, kind of sound in this. How does that combo of vintage and new help, you know, an engineer uh, would make well, the music of today, do you think? I think, well, in uh, you know, people... Um it depends on the level of production and what, what people are recording. I mean, me, myself, I tend to work quite sparsely. So I don't, I rarely tend to need more than 20 mic amps or 24 mm. mic amps on a session, but occasionally you, you're going to get a, a much bigger production where, you know, they, they need, um, you know, 40 odd mic amps. So that's why, why Russell got the 1081s again, because they're, they're brilliant. They're, they're kind of from the same era. Even mm. though they got slightly different numbers, but they're all class A B Neve Neve designs, and they're the the best, the creme de la creme. 
so the, um, the yeah, so I, I, I think, yes, yeah, exactly the right thing to complement the studio with. Nice. Um, I can't yes, wait to see more about the studio when it's properly up and running. We'll update uh, our listeners and viewers when that yeah, is. Yeah, that's it. Um, it, it looks I've, awesome. I've got a session coming up down there in a couple of weeks, so I'm looking forward to that. Okay, I'd be intrigued to hear more. And um, before I let you go, uh, what have you got uh, coming up rest of the year, Mike, that you'd like to share or that we can look out for of yours? Yeah, I've been working, well, uh, yeah, thank you. I've been basically working with The Last Poets again. Um, if you're aware of them, they're, they're a super radical poetry uh, artist from the 70s that essentially are the godfathers of rap, if you like. So you can look them up. They're called The Last Poets. Mm-hmm. So I've been uh, working with them for a few years now. And um, I happened to record Tony Allen, which is a very famous Nigerian drummer. Um, and when the last poets heard these drums of mine that I'd been doing, they, they were like, wow, Mike, we, we would like to put our poetry to the, the kind of Nigerian Afrobeat thing that you got going on. And then we start, just started to do that. And then the pandemic hit. So then as soon as everything got lifted, we, we kind of fired the project back up. My co-producer went to New York a couple of weeks ago and recorded all the poems. And uh, as soon as he came back, um, I had uh, basically Fela Kuti's original musicians from, from his band in the 80s, which is called uh, Egypt Deity. The musicians from that band happened to be touring um, in the UK, doing all the festivals like Glastonbury and mm-hmm. so on. So I knew they were coming. And then we just managed to get everything done in time for them to come to my studio after Glastonbury and record for a week. So it's been a very intense uh, week or so. Mm. And today's my day off, so now I can just actually chill out. But yeah, it's been good fun. Okay, good. And uh, very, very happy to get back to work and in full swing. Doing um, Basically, I do a lot of remastering as well, so because of my reggae reputation too. So now I've started to get vintage recordings from the 70s and 80s and people are asking me to mix them again for remastering and stuff mm-hmm. so i've had my mind blown by by yeah by listening to some amazing recordings from channel one and king tubby studio and stuff so it's really quite amazing mm. you've been through so many you know iterations um since you've started of technology and studios how far it's come i'm curious are you doing anything in dolby atmos at the moment to do with mixing Actually, no. Uh, I have no real need for that. Mm-hmm. To I'm, so, uh, I, I, I mean, I kind of look, I mean, I understand the concept of it. Um, but no, uh, I haven't attempted that and it's not really for me. Um, I think, um, depending on the kind of music that you make, but I, I think, yeah, for me, I'm still, I'm a bit too stuck in my ways. <laughs> yeah I mean sometimes the mastering engineers call me up and say hey man did you mean to send me the mono mix and I say what do you mean and they said yeah it's in mono and I said well that's that's the mix dude I didn't send you the mono version I mean that's it it just I, I think this song doesn't feel very stereo to me so just do it like that and they're like oh okay sorry and I was like wow because you know often it just yeah I think sometimes, I mean, Dolby Atmos in the in the right environment, I've heard it and it sounds incredible. So, um, and I haven't actually got the headphones myself that all the the everyone's using now, the new iPod ones to actually test it. Mm. And 
it is supposed to be better. Mo- you know, my friends that have them tell me it's better, but um, I don't really like little earpods. I'm a bit weird like that. I don't mind walking around with big headphones on. So, um, hence, because of all those things, I kind of still still stay on on my side, which is kind of more of the vinyl and and stereo side. Mm. Um, I do a lot of remastering, and I work with the 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 Carvery Cuts. I don't know if you know those guys, but they're no, they're one of the best mastering houses in London. Carverycuts.com. So we've done many many reissues and many many. I mean, new artists too, like Bonobo or Will Quantic and things like that. But also a lot of remastering and then uh, surgical restoration and surgical tape transferring and stuff like that. So that's the kind of I'm actually more into the nerdy side on on that end. No, no, I like that. You're more into the vintage analog, you know, restoring, you know, the other stuff. So that everyone's got their thing, haven't they? We've got your niche and yeah, what you stick to. I mean, why not? I've been learning. Funny, it's a mind blowing thing, but I've been. Nobody cares really about cartridges on turntables, but I've really got into it now. So that's my new thing. What do you but mean I by got into it? What have you been you're, doing you're, with it? I'm curious. If I talk, if I talk to you about cartridges, you'll start falling asleep. <laughs> Maybe this could be a separate podcast about cartridges <laughs> alone. That's yeah, okay, but yeah, yeah. Especially like, wow, if my girlfriend knew how much the one I want costs, she'd kill me, you know? So no, but joking apart, yeah, that's that's another thing because okay. I've been, I, I love all that. So I'm, I'm very interested in, because uh, basically because we've been restoring uh, some masters and they're only available in vinyl, the tapes were lost. Mm-hmm. So then to understand how to transfer them really at their best quality without, you know, losing so much then um you have to really get into it and that's that's yeah it's fun it's good fun yeah but there must be a market for that these days especially if things are only existing on these older recordings or people want that analog sound i don't know maybe they don't have a record player um so are you finding you're getting requests for that now or do you just like it's mainly from from back catalog from people wanting to you know, like record companies that have lost the master tapes but have original, have the original vinyl, want to have the material restored. Mm-hmm. So it gets quite complicated. If you want to, if you want to, if you take an album off a of vinyl and then master it again to make another vinyl, there's quite a lot of like think, like messing around. You've got to do uh, mathematics and EQ curves and stuff to correct stuff to then make it listenable again. And it's to do with how vinyl works. Okay. So, and all these kind of things. So it's it's kind of coming from that end, but it's really it's about trying to salvage music, really. And um, yeah, so it's really nice hearing beautiful lost recordings and trying trying to bring them back. Mm. So alongside alongside doing new things and live recording, and then you know, like I said, helping out helping out Russell with the seaside stuff. We got it's kind of a bit of everything, but yeah, it's good. Enough to keep you busy, that's for sure. Yeah, well, especially after, you know, for for the, the big lockdown, like, pause. So, yeah, it's good to get back to work. Absolutely. Um, I think that is a nice, upbeat note to end on, Mike. So, I just, you should go. Enjoy your day off, you know. You, you need to thank make use of your time. Thank you. <laughs> go down the no, chicken no shop. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go and take a nice walk into, into town now and go and do my errands. You do that. You enjoy it. And thank you so much for joining today. Thank it's you. been a pleasure. I'm here. Anytime you need me, reach out to me. See you later. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Bye. Thank you. Bye, 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 bye. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.